Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Here's a stoop story from Gwen Mays about lessons she's learned living with a chronic illness. I'm going to also take us back a few years, and for me, quite a few years. So just imagine the late 70s. I think some of you here maybe remember that decade. I was in my second year of graduate school at Emory University in Atlanta. And if we're fortunate, I'll not lapse into my southern accent, but I might. I was studying to be a physician assistant, trying to make something of my life, and I got an assignment to run an EKG. And the instructor said, now, run it on yourself. Don't bother the patients. So I put this off, and I put it off. For most of my classmates, it really was no big deal, but it started to really weigh on my mind. And I put it off until the last night before it was due, like often is the case. And it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I took a break. I was uh, just working part-time to get some money. And I decided to walk over to the recovery room because I knew there'd be an EKG machine there. And I remember it was one of the longest walks of my life. And on my mind were all these episodes when I'd been this little kid who had passed out on the playground. And I kept getting short of breath at all the fraternity hikes in Gatlinburg. Um, I passed out when I gave blood one time and sort of, you know, just tore up the cookie tray. So I was always having these odd things happen. And even though I had a murmur, everyone dismissed it. But more than that, I had these thoughts in my mind that kept playing over and over again of the stories my mother told me when I was young. My mother had grown up in a small town in Kentucky, a very ambitious woman, a beautiful woman who'd been salutatorian of her high school class. She wanted to be a math professor, which is a little odd for a woman in the 40s, but that was her aspiration. She found her father dead of a heart attack, sudden heart attack, with the water still running in the sink in the bathroom her senior year in high school, and her life changed forever. She went and laid down on a sofa, she told me, and didn't speak for a week. And instead of fulfilling her dreams of going to college and making something of her life, she decided to go to work to send the money home. That story I heard over and over again, it was the only story I heard and only thing I knew about my grandfather. There was one picture in our home growing up I knew really not too much about him at all, but I knew the pants he wore that day. I knew that the water was still running. I knew how his legs were crumpled under him on the floor. And mostly I heard over and over again, even though it wasn't really explicit, that this one incident was the turning point of her life and that her dreams were vanished, her hopes and dreams of what she wanted to do with her life. So when I put it all together here, I'm sort of studying to become a physician assistant. I think, is any of this related? But, you know, in the late 70s, there wasn't this whole genetic uh, information. People weren't talking about family medical history. So I tried to squelch my fears, tried to sort of set it aside. So I went to the recovery room. It was quiet. No one was with me. It was very cold. I hopped on a stretcher, got my book out. I hooked up these funky little suction cups with, with goo all over it. And I tried not to look at the machine, but I could hear that of the stylus going up and down with every beat. And the more I tried not to look, the faster, of course, the stylus went. And the paper started coiling on the floor in front of me. It was sort of almost like a snake, and finally I picked it up. And nothing looked normal. Even I, my elementary understanding, nothing looked normal. And it was one of the worst 
moments of my life. It was almost as if everything I had heard, this sort of ghost story, this premonition that I had heard my whole youth was now somehow possibly living inside of me. I ran it again, same output. Instead of rhythmic QRS waves, there were these funky loops and irregular beats. And the whole world just started to close in on me. You know, so many times we think, how am I going to die? What is my life going to be? I was, in, I was about 21 at the time. And in some way, it was like an accordion. My life collapsed that very moment. Interestingly, there was a janitor at the doorway, and I think he thought I didn't know how to run the equipment. And a lot of times in a big inner city hospital, the janitors are kind of trying to help you out. And he's like, oh, Miss Gwen, I know how to do this, da-da-da. And I don't really remember, but the next thing I know, he hooked himself up, ran an EKG, and it was whistle clean. And I looked at it, and I was so pissed. Here was mine, abnormal, and here was his, perfectly fine. The next day, I turned in his instead of mine. I took mine in my hand, I crumpled it up, threw it in the trash can, and I swore I would never tell a soul. Without any evidence, it didn't happen, right? That's the way we think sometimes. I put it out of my mind. I squelched every palpitation. Every time I got short of breath, I would march myself right to Elizabeth Arden and get my nails done. (laughs) I bought expensive clothes, $350 bally bags at Neiman Marcus, started getting my hair highlighted, started smoking, started drinking, started dancing on the speakers at the limelight. I wanted to squelch any any whiff of an idea that something wasn't right. I canceled doctor's appointments, lied on my medical records. And I continued to do this, but ironically, my career soared. At the same time, I helped Emory build their first heart transplant program. My job was to go and talk to families about organ donation. And I would carry organs and playmate coolers around North America and help people put organs from deceased individuals into those who needed them. Really a pioneering field that I absolutely loved. But every time I went to surgery, every time I held a human heart in my hand, I thought, am I going to be one of these people one day? Is somebody going to cut me open, take my heart out, and put someone else's in it? And I never told a soul. All of this sort of converged in my life in 1988, almost 10 years after that EKG was run, When I was in Washington, I had just moved to D.C., I was a consultant to the federal government in the Office of Transplant. Congress had gotten involved in regulating organ transplantation. Within a few weeks, I had palpitations one day on the red line to DuPont Circle so bad, I was nearly lying on the floor with the filth and the papers. It was the scariest moment, and I realized that once again, This was a wake-up call. You've got to find out what's wrong with you. I felt like a horse was kicking the inside of my chest. I was diaphoretic. I was clammy. I didn't know if I was supposed to pull the emergency cord. People were trying to help me. I was underground. I was in one of those tunnels. It was dark. I didn't know Washington. I was by myself. I had about $3 in my purse. I didn't literally know. I thought, I'm going to die right here in this subway. And I've been too stupid and too arrogant to take care of myself. I made it to the ER, and the first thing the doctor said was, we think you have a heart attack. We don't know. Maybe it's a pulmonary embolus. I was discharged at 4 o'clock in the morning without enough money to get home, and I slept on a park bench. 
The next week I had a diagnosis of idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis, which took me a little while to, uh, you know, sort of get it to roll off my tongue. I hadn't uh, really studied it in school. The doctor only had, had no other patients with with it, excuse me. It was rare. Yes, it's probably what I inherited from my grandfather, skipped a generation. They didn't really know. This was 1988. I was 32 years old. So I'll let you do the math. It was almost 30 years ago. The first thing he said to me is, um, you will have a shortened life expectancy. I asked him how long he didn't know. I said, thought, well, you know, my father's this, my mother's that. Children would be risky. I would need to be under care every six months for the rest of my life. And pretty soon it was like this invisible white hand just erased any idea I had of what my life was going to look like. Children, boyfriends, marriage, the white picket fence, all those good little things when you grow up in the South that you aspire to. So I walked out, and now I had a name, and I knew what was the condition, but I didn't know what to do with it. The guy I was dating at the time was a gym rat. I think his name was Mike, and I'm glad I don't even remember. But I do remember, I do remember when I sort of stepped out and on the phone said, well, you know, I was in the hospital last week, and I might not get to, you know, uh, like, uh, uh, like uh, uh, work out. Uh, uh, I think something's wrong with my heart. His comment was to me, I don't want to date an invalid, and I never saw him again. I told someone at work her suggestion was to go on disability. The next man I told, I was scrambling eggs after a night of sort of fooling around. I'll leave it to that. I was younger. Uh, It did involve something red, I I think I remember. And he was reading the paper, and I said, you know, um, I might want to just mention, you know, maybe sort of kind of, you know, I don't know if you noticed or not. I was always humming around about this, and I said, you know, I think there might be, I have this kind of heart thing. I'm not sure what it is. And, you know, is that okay with you? I mean, do you get it? And he said, yeah, that's all right. Without putting the paper down, said, unless it interferes with our sex life. Okay? All right? So, pretty soon I understood very clearly that I needed to lie. I falsified medical records. I couldn't get health insurance pre-COBRA days. And my career really soared. And that's when I decided to put my time, my talents, my energy, and that the person the world would come to know was an accomplished professional. And I shut my heart down. I shut my heart down. Never married, never had children. I never lived the life I thought I was going to live. So I'm very proud to say that I've had accomplishments in my career that are great, great sources of pride for me. I worked for the Artificial Heart Company, went to law school. I lobbied Congress. I've met out at CMS, out on Security Boulevard. I've traveled all over the world talking on behalf of organ transplantation and the rights of patients. In recent years, I realized that I had been telling a story to myself that just wasn't true, that I was the one who saw myself as damaged goods. I was the one who made heart disease such a scary, spooky thing in my life. So today, um, just to wrap up, I would encourage you, if you too are living with a chronic illness, to know that you're not defined by it. There are lots of people here tonight with asthma, diabetes, prostate cancer, taking care of those with disabilities. 
and that each and every one of us has a very important voice in today's world of healthcare policy. That was a Stoop story from Gwen Mays about learning to live with heart disease. We have more information about the Stoop Storytelling series and the Stoop podcast at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Hope your weekend is undaunted.